We began our study with how things were going to be in the kingdom with beginning of chapter 6. At the end of chapter 5, uh, Jesus is able to unopen or to open the uh, seals or open the scroll. And uh, we have, we come now to the fifth seal that is to be opened. The first seven, the first six seals, it seems to me, are uh, just broad strokes of how it's going to be in the kingdom. And uh, once we get to the seventh seal, things will start changing a little bit and there will be a lot more detail. But we saw at the beginning, we saw four horses. And these four horses have the, having to do with the uh, battle or the war between God and Satan, between Jesus and the devil. Remember, we are studying a, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means something. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is revealing. I believe that means we're studying what it's going to be like in the church. That is the body of Christ on earth. Now, I haven't spent much time, and last time I asked people and uh, got a few comments and of what they thought about what I did. And the people that I had talked to quite a bit said, and the people who I hadn't talked to went, mm, I don't know what you're talking about. And so uh, I said, well, maybe I went too fast. And maybe it's because what we talked about was not what maybe you've heard before. And uh, I'll just tell you, if I haven't told you this, and I did when we did some of the pre-revelation uh, stuff, is I don't believe that the revelation is just a running history of the world from the time that John wrote this until Jesus comes again. And if you would like me to talk more about that, uh, at some point I would be glad to do it. Why I don't believe that. But I'll just tell you the underlying reason is there's absolutely no verses that teach it. I have a book in mind. In fact, I gathered up maybe uh, seven or eight books, some I didn't even know I had on the Revelation. I have one that takes that. He makes this strong case that, well, it's history. It's, it's, a, it's a prophecy. So therefore, this is how we have to take it. Then with every horse, with every seal, with every event, he has not one verse to prove that's what it is. He just has some little snippet out of history that says, well, this has to fit it. To me, we should do use the revelation like we use the rest of the Bible. We use it to understand what he's talking about. So that's why I take this view. And uh, today we got to the, and they're, they're built on one another. We have the first horse, which is the gospel going out. It begins the battle. The second horse is those who rejected the gospel and their fight uh, against it. Then we have God's use of uh, natural things, of commerce, and then of uh, uh, even just uh, straight uh, judgment. But Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age, in Matthew chapter 28, at verse 20. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says uh, he must reign until he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. It is the gospel message that defeats the devil. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. When they came to take Jesus in the garden on the night of his betrayal, he said this to them when they approached him. He said, every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. I mentioned last time a verse in Luke, you know, because 
Uh, we all know that Jesus said that I didn't come to send peace but a sword. But Luke prefaces that with Jesus' words where he says, I have not come to bring fire on the earth. How I wish it were already kindled. And I'll tell you, I'll have to admit, I hadn't really put uh, that verse in my mind before. I'm going to send fire on the earth. How I wish it were already kindled. But he said, I've got a baptism that I need to be baptized with. And of course, he was talking about his crucifixion. But the division between uh, God and Satan is a division of righteousness and unrighteousness. It's a division of uh, saints and sinners. In 1 John chapter 3, at verse 12, John said, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brother's were righteous. From the very beginning, there have been persecution against those who follow God's way. Again, the saint and the sinner, or the righteous and the unrighteous. We find in Revelation 6 at verse 4, which we looked at last time, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. A rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. So this, there was something that caused them to... Uh, want to kill each other. And Revelation 12, verse 17 says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The devil wants to make war. And he goes off and he uh, makes war with those who obey the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's what this fifth seal is about in a broad stroke. I uh, have titled this section, and there's only three verses we're going to talk about this morning. What about us? Because it seems like that's really what's going on there. We have seen uh, in a broad stroke how the battle uh, starts and is going, but then, uh, but what about Christians in, in this time? What's, what about them when all this uh, destruction is going on. Verse 9 says, When I opened the fifth seal, I saw an altar, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So I saw under the altar. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, more interesting than I, again, gave it Greetings for is that we will find the temple worship in the Revelation. Now, I don't believe it's the temple worship, but we find references to temple worship. Again, that leads more to this idea that what we have is the Old Testament temple that foreshadowed the new. Here's how things were in the temple. Here's how things are in the church. So we have an altar. Of course, in the temple, there was an altar. In fact, in uh, Exodus 20, when God first gave them the law, he said, make an altar. And he said, make an altar of dirt, make an altar of earth, and uh, then offer your animals upon that wherever you are, and I will come to you. But then, of course, he sets up temple worship. And uh, so in the temple worship, there was a bronze altar. In fact, there were two altars in temple worship. There was an altar that sat just outside the door of the entrance of the holy place. And then there was the altar of incense, it's often called, that sat before the veil. I'd like to read Leviticus chapter 4 at verse 16. Then the, uh, then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of of the veil. Now notice where they're sprinkling the blood. They're sprinkling the blood in front of the veil. That's the altar of incense. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting, and all the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. 
I couldn't find, and if you know there's a place, if you find there's a place, let me know. I couldn't find a place that said that when they offered the calf or when they offered the sheep or the goat or even the bird, that they drained that blood out into a basin or a bowl. However, you can find many times, many, many times where this basin or bowl is mentioned. The King James uses the word basin. Uh, many translations call it a sprinkling bowl. And uh, it was the basin, it was the bowl out of which the priest was to put his hand and sprinkle the altar. Well, he was to take that blood. It's, to me, it's just a necessary conclusion that they had to drain it, their, the blood into something and they drained it into these bowls. So then they would take that and they would go inside, they would sprinkle that on the altar of incense, place it on the horns of that altar. Then they would go out and they would pour that blood at the base of the sacrificial altar, which is in at the doorway, he says here, of the tent of meeting. You can find this same thing in verse 24, in verse 25, in chapter 5 and 8, in chapter 5 of 9 of Leviticus. In other words, and he talks about the calf, he talks about the goat. In each of these sacrifices, whatever their sacrifice, he says how to do it, and it was basically done in the same way. And so uh, the reason I bring up this pouring the blood at the base of the altar, it just seems to me like that's why then he says the souls are under the altar. These souls have been offered on the altar. Now, of course, it's the altar outside where they burnt the meat, where they cooked the meat. It was on that altar that they poured the drink offering. And this drink offering was more just like a, what we would say, uh, marinade that you pour it on there and it makes it all better. That's where they sacrificed, but it's also where they poured the blood. And, of course, this goes right hand in hand with the idea uh, that uh, those who had been slain, those who had been killed. This word slain means butcher. Uh, it's the idea of to uh, kill an animal either for food or for sacrifice. It is used in a number of places in Revelation, but it is in chapter 5, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Also we see it again in verse 9, speaking of Jesus and the song that was sung. You were slain and you purchased for God with uh, your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It is the same word used in verse 4, that they were given power to slay one another. So I will tell you right now what I think about this passage and then I hope I can prove it in, at least in some ways as I go along. I believe that the slain in this passage are just Christians who had lived their life righteous and were persecuted for the cause of Jesus. And I'll get more specific as we go along. Now they had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony. Well, because of the word of God. Why is anybody killed because of the word of God? In John chapter 17, at verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying about the apostles and then a little bit later he said and I'm not praying just for them alone but for all that will believe on me through their word but he's praying for them and he says they're mine and they're like me and they're going to be in the world and he says the interesting thing he said I'm not praying that you take them out of the world I'm praying that you keep them from the evil one what about us? In all the chaos and all the trouble that we read about in the first four seals, the saints are there. God doesn't take them out of that. God doesn't say, well, guess what? The saints never have to suffer. God doesn't say, well, you're going to get a new house. You're going to get a new car. You'll never be sick. 
That's just not, that's just not biblical. That's not the idea. We're going to have to go through various troubles and trials. We're even going to have to go through troubles and trials that other people don't have to go through. Now, if the commerce is bad, we're in the commerce. If there's a flu going around, we're going to get the flu. It's, he's not going to take us out of that. And even more than that, there are going to be people in the world who hate God, and they hate his word, and they're going to hate us. If you think you can make everybody in the world love you and like you, you can't. You can't be a Christian. I had a wonderful talk on the way to Tracy's the other night with Scott and Angela Stockham. This sermon's not about that, but Scott said something that just got me. This made me think. And he, he was talking about his kids. Well, you know, you got to talk about your kids and your grandkids and how everybody's doing and what they're doing. And he said, one of the blessings now is these kids can work from home. He said, because the workplace is a dangerous thing because you have to call genders by the right gender or, uh, you know, use all this terminology. And of course, I've been working on this sermon. And I didn't say anything to Scott right then, but the more I wheeled, I thought, no. God doesn't take us out of the world to shut our mouth. God leaves us in the world to stand up for truth and right. That we can affect those around us. And if we don't affect them, he might as well stop it. He might as well end it right here. Might as well be over. These people were persecuted because of the word of God. If the world hates you, Jesus goes on to say, uh, you know it hated me before it hated you. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, For this is the message we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain. I read all you. Why did Cain kill his brother? Because his own uh, deeds were evil. Then John says, Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. So we're hated because of the word of God, because it's opposed to righteousness. It's opposed to uh, the life that they're living. It makes them feel guilty. Maybe there's more to it than that, but I believe that's a big part of it. Everybody knows the general uh, truth of God as far as morality is concerned, and it makes people feel guilty. Don't, don't, don't get mad at me. I've not been persecuted very much at all. Make me wonder if I was strong enough that, as I should be. But I was just thinking about someone getting mad one day. Again, I didn't even know this lady. Never met her before. But I was holding a meeting in San Antonio, Texas. Sunday morning, I had chosen to speak on 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, on the hair of men and women. And, of course, the lady had her hair cut off. I tried to say everything I could say in the nicest way I knew how to say it but I could tell it was kind of getting under her skin. And after a while, she gets up, and she goes out, and they, in their foyer, they, they had a glass door that you went through to get to the foyer, so I could still see what she did. She went through that door, and she turned around and gave me this deadly stare. And then she turned around and walked out the door and slammed her really hard. And I said this last time. As kind as you can be, you don't have to be mean. You don't have to be difficult for people to not like what, you have, what you're saying. Because it's not you. It's the Word. And not only the Word of God and the testimony they maintain. What does that mean? And the testimony they maintain. I really don't like that Translation, the testimony they maintained. Uh, I don't think it's the best. The King James says the testimony they held. I believe that's better. And what I was reading was the New American Standard. 
I start to say every other place. But this word is used, this just means they have. If you look up the little word that's translated had maintained, it just comes the word they had. I think that's the best translation. The testimony they had. And that refers to them whether they're dead or alive. They have a testimony. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I believe when we look at a couple other places, we can see what this testimony means. Now, I don't believe it means this denomination of you of my testimony. Let me tell you my testimony. Oh, I was the vilest sinner in the world, and nobody's ever sinned like I've sinned. And then when I, uh, the Lord saved me, and, and the Lord brought me out. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. He must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall to the disgrace and to the trap of the devil. Titus 1, verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. In other words, this report about them is true. For this reason, reprove them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. The idea of a testimony here is the life that you're living. You know, there's uh, someone has said one time, if you were, uh, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And that's the concept of the testimony. It's not just the fact that they believed the word. They actually practiced it. And it was, again, they're, uh, they just don't, don't like things that have to do with God. In 3 John chapter 1, verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. A good report. Like reputation. Now, John was trying to get the beloved Gaius to make sure he was following Demetrius and not Diotrephes. He said, Demetrius, he has a good testimony. He has a good reputation. In other words, he's living the life. Now, Diotrephes was not. Two distinct individuals. Now, this word is used quite a few times in the Revelation. It's used in Revelation 1.9, probably the most well-known I, John, who is your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and in patience of Jesus Christ that was, was on the Isle of Patmos. Why? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm here because I believe and I practiced Christianity. That's why I'm here. Chapter 11, verse 7 says, And, uh, when, and when they had finished their testimony... The beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives even to the death. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. They overcame him by practicing Christianity. Revelation uh, 12 and verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Listen now, which kept the commandments of God, there's the word, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was preparing to leave his apostles, he said, again, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. But that's not the first time that Jesus talked about this persecution that was going to come on Christians. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men and when people insult you, persecute you, and say falsely all kind of evil against you. There's that testimony thing again. Falsely, you, know. you have the right testimony when they have to make up stuff to claim how bad you are. 
Rejoice, he said, and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In this time of persecution and trouble, he said, be happy. Rejoice. Why? Because we're not earth dwellers. This world's not our home. We're strangers and pilgrims as we travel in this land. But when I began to study the idea of a persecution and the uh, universal nature of persecutions that uh, Christians endured, I thought it was interesting to read the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew. Jesus said, and we all know this passage very well, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are there are many who go through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are a few that find it. And you might say, now Delmar, where in the world do you find some kind of persecution in that? Well, the word narrow in that passage means to be crowded, to crowd in on. And while it's used just a couple of times to refer to something that is a, a narrow passageway, most of the time the word is translated by the word affliction or afflicting. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God is, is in God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted on every way. There's our word. We're afflicted in every way. We're pressed in on every way, he said, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer afflictions. We're going to be pressed in. And so it came to pass, as you know. In Acts chapter 14, at verse 21, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples in returning to Lystra, Iconium Antioch, strengthening, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith by saying, with many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. That's our word. Jesus said we've got to walk the narrow way we're going to be pressed in and Paul and Barnabas they go back and they tell these disciples hang in there because there's going to be trouble coming your way well we know in this setting already at least some of them some of them were killed some of them were slain verse 10 Revelation 6, verse 10, we continue our chapter. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? That's why I titled this, What About Us? Because that's really what's going on there. Say. They know all the first four uh, horses that, that's been going on. What about us? When? When is it that we're going to be shown to be righteous? When are, we, when are we going to be vindicated? In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, 2, 3 and 4, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abound. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. This cry for how long has been going on as long as there have been righteous people. Looking around and seeing, it seems sometime that the evil is going to win. 
And I think that's what they're doing. They've given their life in the cause of Jesus. And they're saying, Lord, how long? When is it that this is going to end? When is it that there will be a day of judgment? Remember, Paul writes in Romans, he says, never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as much as depends on you, be, be at peace with all men. Then he says, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I loved one commentary. Uh, I don't remember who it was. He said, you know, God's time and our time are just not the same. But when God's going to do something and when we're going to do something, we want it yesterday. Don't fear. Don't worry. It will come about. Psalms 74, verse 6 through 12. And there are a number of these psalms. I thought this would maybe uh, fit our concept or our, our text better than the others. And now all of its carved work they smashed with hatchets and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. They are no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O oh God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand? even your right hand from within your bosom, destroy them. Yet God is my king from old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18, the nations were angry, their wrath has come, the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who revenge your name, both small and great, and for, for destroying those who destroy the earth. Don't worry about it. The time's coming. Time's not yet. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, this is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. There it is, suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give re relief to you are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel. God's going to give vengeance. But you know, it's going to be when he returns. There's coming a time for vengeance. But you know, this persecution all came from those who dwell on the earth. That's who they were asking to take vengeance on. And that's why I've got earth dwellers. Because I thought that was an interesting little concept. Those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Look, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth. All those who are living on the earth, all men of the earth will mourn because of him. Revelation 8, verse 13, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in the midair call with a loud voice, Woe, woe, to the inhabitants of the earth, earth dwellers, because the trumpet blast was about to sound by the other three angels. Chapter 11, verse 10, The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who dwelt on the earth, who lived on the earth. Verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who revenge your name, both small and great. And for uh, destroying those who destroy the earth. Chapter 13, verse 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. 13, verse 14, because the signs he has given... Uh, because of the signs he has given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived, who did he see? Uh, earth dwellers. The inhabitants of the earth, that's who were deceived by 
the beast. And on and on we go. There's, and they've got three or four more. This is the idea of the flesh. The flesh persecuting the spirit. What Paul writes to the Galatians, chapter 4, verse nine, uh, 29. But as at this time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. Verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed had been completed. Given a white robe. Now we've seen this white robe. We've talked about it already in our studies. We'll mention it just a little bit. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them to the high mountain by himself, Mount of Transfiguration. And what happened? His garment was changed and was radiant and became exceedingly white, as white as no, no launderer could make him. Angels were dressed in white at the tomb of Jesus. Now there's two or three occasions we see angels dressed in white. The saints are dressed in white. Revelation chapter 3 verse 4. Yet you have a few in Sardis that have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. To the angel of the church at Laodicea, he said, You say I'm rich and have acquired wealth and do not need anything. But you do not realize that you're wretched and pitiful and blind and poor and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you may be rich in white clothes to wear that you can cover your shameful nakedness and a salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Chapter 7, we have really the definition. Uh, in chapter 19, rather. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory. Now give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready Fine, bright, clean linen was given to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Husbands, love your wives, and as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might make her holy and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word and present him to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but be holy and blameless. He said, wear your white robes and rest. Wear your white robes and rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest to your souls. That's what we're talking about today. Souls resting. We'll find rest to your souls. Wait a little longer. Wear your white robes and rest. We also, we just read this passage a while ago, but in 2 Thessalonians 1 at verse 7, you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed. In James chapter 5, James says this, Be patient then, brethren, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Use the same phrase there. It's close. It's near. It won't be very long. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider them blessed to persevere. You have heard of the patience of Job, and you've seen that the Lord finally, what the Lord finally brought about, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He said, you know, it's close. And look at Job. God doesn't forget. The time is near. Well, how long? We look back and we say, 2,000 years. And we're going to spend more about this thousand uh, probably next time. 
but we'll introduce it in the next time. But we have it in chapter 7 with the 144,000, and we have it again with a thousand year reign. What does this thousand mean? Thousand just means a long time. But over and over we see a little while. We see the very end. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me. That's verse 12. Verse 22 says, And he who testifies to these things, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now we have been, we have been saying when for 2,000 years. When's Jesus coming? In a little while. It won't be very long. But when you look at those statements that are made, this little while, that it won't be very long, they're made in the context of God. In the context of eternity. The world's been rocking on and out for 6,000 years, maybe a little bit better. In the context of eternity. What is that? It's still but a blip on the radar screen. It's a little while. And we just studied in Peter. The day where the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years today. Old Testament passage. We're going to talk about that more next time. But all that means is with God, this time thing is irrelevant. We're the ones who worry about time. When? God's going to take care of it in his own time. As he told the prophet, he said, if you knew when he's griping about when's going to happen, when is this going to happen? I see they've torn out everything. He said, if you just knew what I have in store, you wouldn't even believe it. You can't imagine what God has in store. It's going to be the most wonderful deliverance that you could even wrap your imagination around. It won't be very long. Oh, we we might not see him coming in the clouds until we're resurrected from the grave. But it doesn't matter. It won't be very long. It won't be very long until the judgment's seen for us. You know, as we get older, I tell people all the time, as I get older, I understand better the, the weaver shuttle and the vapor because it seems just like yesterday. Again, talking to the Stockhams and about our children, and about our grandchildren. Part of the thing you say, well, how old are they? Of course, their oldest granddaughter now is four. And I think that's, I know I've seen their kids uh, in the last few years, but in my thinking, it's like, that's like how old Andrea ought to be. It's just, it's just quickly. And that's what, that's what these people are told. Wait a little while. Until the number of your fellow servants and the brothers of them that have killed, that were to be killed as they have been, were completed. I went ahead and left the New American Standard in there, which I don't think is a good translation either, but because I want to talk about it, because this is not an uncommon way to translate this verse. The word number is not in this verse at all. It's a, it's an assumption that this is the way that we should take it. The King James translates it, the white robes were given to every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So the word here is the word fulfilled. Now the word killed is not the word slain as before either, but it does mean to kill or to destroy. Uh, and so it doesn't really carry much of a different weight than the idea of to kill. But it seems to me, I said I was going to get to this at the end, so we're nearing the end. It seems to me that the word slain and the word kill in this passage are used in a figurative way. You know, we often talk about the uh, assembly and we say upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread Paul preached to them we said well break bread is a figure of speech it's called a synecdoche but you don't have to remember that but it's a figure of speech where one part 
stands for the whole. I believe that's really what's going on in this passage. He's using the slain. Now, there are plenty who really literally were killed for the cause of Jesus. But there are plenty who weren't literally killed for the cause of Jesus. But everybody suffered. And I believe he's using the extreme to include everyone. We all suffer. And we're all troubles happen. We all have to go through things. As many as will live godly, Paul said, in this life will suffer persecution. And he's telling all of us, don't worry. Rest for a little while. And I will come and relieve you. There's coming a time. In fact, a little bit later and I... I have this, I think, in my notes, but I must have missed it as I was reading. But I believe it's in chapter 11. It said, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Why? Because they rest in their labors and their works do follow them. He didn't say, Blessed are the dead who are slain. In other words, they're the only ones who are going to rest at the end. It's those who die in the Lord. And their works, their testimony, if you please, their reputation. It has an effect, even after they're gone, it has an effect on the world around them. I just want to read a few verses and, and then I'm, I'm through. Before I read these verses, I will say there are a few things we learn in this. Number one is if we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, our lives are continually sacrificed. It's just a given. This idea of persecution. God does not keep his people from suffering. In fact, the opposite is true. If we are faithful, we will and must suffer. Secondly, the rest at the end will be worth it all. The suffering, Paul says in chapter Romans chapter 8, is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And number three, when it seems as though darkness reigns, as Jesus said, when they came to take him. This is your hour. Darkness is reigning. When it seems that darkness reigns, we can be confident. Vindication day is coming. We can be confident. Now, the disciples were having trouble with that. Because when they took Jesus, they fled. And they went and they locked themselves in a room. Because they were afraid that they would come and get them and crucify them. They didn't know what to think about it. Some of them were having a very difficult time with their faith. I believe that's why Jesus said, when he came to them and sent them into all the world, he said, as those who believe, these signs shall follow. If you believe, because he upbraided them over and over again for their unbelieving heart. It was a dark hour. And all they could see was the darkness. All they could see in Jesus was the death. But the battle just started. When he resurrected from the dead, was the answer. Revelation chapter 2 to the church at Smyrna. I want to read this letter. These are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again, died and resurrected. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution. Ten days, here again, a little while. You're going to suffer for a little while. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit saved to the churches, and he who, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Paul says to the Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 14, Therefore, since the children are flesh and blood, and he himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to to bondage. You ever wonder what that passage is about? 
I have. I wanted it a lot of times. But I don't think I really understood it until I studied this, these verses. He said, Jesus destroyed the power of death, that is the devil, that he might free those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to slavery. The threat of death, listen now, here's the lesson. The threat of death has no power over us. It cannot enslave us. It cannot make us change who we are because it has no force. Someone says something bad about you, makes fun about you, tries to destroy you in any way. If he destroys you, if he kills you, that has no power over you because we're strangers and pilgrims. We're not earth dwellers. We know this world is not our home. We're just passing through. So we cannot be enslaved by the threat of death. I told Ralph last Sunday that he just, uh, he just did a good preface to this sermon. So I'd like to read the verses from last Sunday and then I'll finish. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does God take us out of persecution? No. But because of the resurrection, we suffer. Rest a little while. Vindication day's coming. 